Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. And today we are talking to someone who gives people ecstasy for science. Our guest this week is Harriet DeWitt. She's studied the effects of a bunch of different drugs from LSD to psilocybin to alcohol to cannabis and ecstasy, all the drugs. She leads the Human Behavioral Pharmacology Laboratory at the University of Chicago. A lot of people think the work Harriet does is controversial because most of these drugs are illegal, after all, and they can also be really dangerous. So just to be clear, this episode is not about condoning drug use. That said, why is Harriet giving people drugs? For one... It's really good to know as much as possible about them because a lot of people are going to take them whether or not they're legal. For two, how humans respond to these drugs could actually teach us a lot about human biology and neuroscience. And third, it's possible these drugs could actually be used to treat stuff like depression and PTSD and other mental illnesses. So how does a study like this even happen? Well, a few years ago, Harriet wanted to figure out why MDMA makes people act so differently from other amphetamines such as like cocaine or speed. The first thing you need to do is find a source of the drug that's pure. Oh, of so course. That, it <laughs> I'm glad turns, you turns out to be to a that. challenge. Well, and there's probably also some like moral and legal problems with just going out and exactly. and p- buying some stuff exactly. from a person. Exactly. <laughs> so step one was obviously to find a hookup. Harriet uses a pharmacologist who apparently made a bunch of ecstasy before he retired and provided Harriet with what she calls a small amount. Um, What is a small amount in this situation? I mean, it's got to be actually kind of a big amount, right, when it comes to... Well, a typical dose is that we give to volunteer is maybe 125 milligrams. Okay. So if he gave us, I don't know, 10 grams or something, that'll keep us going for years. Uh Uh-huh. Wow. I did a little bit of Googling because I have no idea what ecstasy dosing is like, and I found a website called rollsafe.org, and they say that a dose of 125 milligrams like should make for a pretty solid MDMA experience. So... Yeah. So we got a good enough quantity that we have to store it in a very heavy and very well-guarded safe. And it has to be locked across three sets of locked doors. So we take a lot of precautions to protect it. So does that mean then, I mean, you're administering MDMA to people, you're administering placebos, and then are you also administering straight up amphetamine also so that you can kind of compare the differences? Yes. Typically, in the typical studies that we've done, the subjects participate in three or four sessions. Each session lasts about five hours, and they're separated by two or three days to allow the drug to clear. (laughs) And they get a drug at the beginning. First of all, we have to make sure they haven't used any drugs and they're not pregnant. And Uh then we administer the drug, and we administer it under double-blind conditions, so the experimenter doesn't know what he or she is giving. Uh 
And the subject is only told they might get a stimulant, a tranquilizer, a placebo, uh, an antihistamine. So we give them a, a lot of different options so that we don't direct their expectations into a certain kind of drug effect because clearly, obviously, expectations can influence people's responses. And ideally, have they never done any of those drugs before? Well, that's a good question. Uh, with the studies with MDMA, we chose to only use subjects who have used it at some point in their life, okay. who've used MDMA at some point in their life. I didn't want to be the person responsible for the first giving them the first dose, but it's sort of an arbitrary decision. Sometimes with something like amphetamine, we do give it, and people get amphetamines all the time in therapeutic setting, you know, children yeah. for ADHD and right. that kind of thing. So we feel a little more comfortable with that. But for the MDMA, I wanted to limit it to people who have at least experienced So they had to have used it between four and 40 times. We also didn't want people who were really dependent on it and had used it hundreds and hundreds of right, times. Right, right. So our limit was between four and 40 times. That's so still a pretty broad spectrum. It is a broad spectrum. Turns out it doesn't make that much difference. And we've looked back to see whether it made a difference in their responses to a single dose of the drug, whether they had used it frequently before, and it didn't make very much difference. Huh. So they come in, we give them the drug, and then we ask them at regular intervals. We measure their heart rate and blood pressure for safety reasons and also to measure the drug effect. And then, and they're yeah. in what, like a room with a couch and a exactly. TV and a desk or something? Like It's a, a comfortable room. It has couches. It has a TV. It has sort of incandescent lighting. It has – they can watch – videos, kind of neutral videos. So it's like almost like a dorm common room yeah, or something. Yeah. Okay. And they're, they're all in the same no, room? No, they're tested individually. Okay. Individually. And that's it. Well, for the most, that's an interesting question because this is a drug that makes people feel more social. Right. And we're giving it to them alone. And so then <laughs> it raises the question. And interestingly, if you ask them how sociable they feel, they say the drug increases their feelings of sociability. Uh -huh. But if you ask them if they feel lonely, that also increases. Oh, no. Huh. <laughs> so, but it's pro probably an artifact of testing them alone. And we've done a few uh -huh. studies where we test them in pairs or test them with, with a research assistant. So that's something that we'd be interested in looking at. Right. But it gets really complicated because then they affect each other. So you mentioned neutral videos. What is is that like Seinfeld or something? Yeah, <laughs> it turns out that we we, we we limit them to the rated if they're R rated or X. Oh, X okay, so, yeah. So that when we first started, they all wanted X rated movies. Okay. Oh no! So, so we yeah. said no R. No. <laughs> <laughs> you can't watch porn during the study. But you know, you'd be surprised that even some of the children's m movies are very emotional. So we're trying oh, to gosh, we're trying totally. to minimize their emotional input from the movie to, uh -huh. to maximize. What so we no get from Disney. The you can't do Disney. <laughs> Anyway, we're we're not that. We just we just give them we just give them general movies. Fair enough. So, yeah. <laughs> and then you just observe them and for those they five complete, hours. They have we have standardized questionnaires that they complete every half hour or so, and then we measure the heart rate, blood pressure, and then sometimes they do tasks, so we ta get them to rate things. And so, here's one of the interesting findings. Yeah. One of the things we have found, so we we look at their uh, ability to detect emotions in other people. And this is done by showing them pictures of, a, it's a picture of a neutral face, and then it's presented in gradations. It's morphed to some emotion. Okay. So As, neutral face, you mean just like somebody just not like, smiling, not frowning, yeah. just like standing there. And then in a little, in a video, it gradually becomes a smile. Uh, okay. Or yeah. it gradually becomes anger uh -huh. or fear. or And so these are standardized tasks. Uh-huh. 
And so we ask the people to tell us when they recognize the emotion. Oh, interesting. So we can look at whether the drug changes the threshold for their ability to detect emotion. Of how soon they can sense the smile or see the frown. And the coolest thing is that it increases the threshold, that it makes it more difficult for them to detect anger and to some extent fear as well. Without affecting the, it doesn't affect their threshold of of, uh, happy or sad. So what you're saying is that when they're on MDMA in the lab and they're looking at these pictures, they perceive happiness the same way they would under normal circumstances, but they, it takes them much longer. They're more impervious to sensing anger or fear. Yeah. Huh. So, So they're less sensitive to threat. Now, if you think about that in the context of a rave. (laughs) <laughs> okay. They're in a very, or in a social situation yeah. where you don't know everybody, you don't yeah. know that many people. If you perceived less of a negative expression in other people's faces, then that might make you more able to interact socially. Sure. You would feel less inhibited. You wouldn't worry about exactly. shame as much. You wouldn't have to feel as vulnerable because you could just like live your best life. And then similarly, in a therapeutic situation, if you're with your therapist and you see less of a, you know, the therapist isn't looking angry, but might have a little bit of an angry expression. If you perceive less of a threatening expression in the therapist, you might be more willing to talk about difficult things. Yeah. So that's an example of, so here's a drug that gets used both recreationally and for therapeutic reasons. And here this single possible behavioral process could account for, could contribute to both of those effects. So yeah, I'm really curious to talk to you about the the therapeutic applications of this. I think partly I've been thinking about it much more lately since Michael Pollan's book came out last year. It was called How to Change Your Mind. Um, like I remember literally the day he did an interview with Terry Gross on Fresh Air, Two of my very dear, very type A girlfriends were like, you know, I'm thinking about doing acid. (laughs) And it was this fascinating thing where like, you know, I I love the idea that he's opening up people's minds to potential applications of these things that we have long considered to be like capital B bad. Yeah. But it's also sort of like, I don't know. I mean, I'm a little concerned that that we go too far in the other direction and end up really cavalier about. You know, like it's one thing to do them in professional therapeutic settings. It's totally different to like hope for a good hookup from like a friend of a friend of a friend, right? I think you're absolutely right. And uh, and uh, uh, the whole world of researchers is feeling very cautious, cautiously optimistic sure. that if the drugs are used under controlled circumstances, they might have some potential benefits, but they're also worried that they'll go the same direction as the LSD did in the 80s or the or, or MDMA in the past as well. So uh, you're, I think you're right to have concerns and we all have similar kinds of concerns. After the break, Harriet helps explain why people even like to get high. And then, of course, I ask her if she has any interest in trying recreational drugs. I don't know how to answer that. Fair response. You're listening to Nerdette. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. 
Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So why were you interested in the in studying these mind-altering substances? At the time that I started studying, I thought it was quite remarkable that rodents would self-administer the same drugs that people like to use. So the drugs that people find pleasurable and they experience euphoria are the same drugs that animals will self-administer. And so that tells us that drug taking is in a sense biologically based. And so then the rodent models provide a means to study the underlying neurobiology for that matter, but also the behavioral processes that are involved in drug taking. And then when I came to do a postdoctoral fellowship, actually here in Chicago, I made the switch to humans. And I discovered that you could address even richer questions with humans because people can report on how they're uh-huh. feeling. So in the animals, you're restricted to seeing how, how often they press a lever to get a drug. Mm-hmm. It's but purely in, observational. Exactly. Or it's purely behavioral. But in humans, you, they can tell you how it feels. They can say, well, this makes me feel a little anxious, but I feel high. Or this one I like, this one I don't like. You can measure behaviors, like whether they're more impulsive or have better memory. Or So you can look at so many other dimensions. Not only can you measure other dimensions, you can also look at different variables like personality variables or demographic characteristics, things that influence people's responses to drugs. So the, it's, it's from, a re- from a point of view of a research, the human research is, is much richer in a sense in terms of what kind of information you can collect. Well, and I think it's really interesting to consider, too. I mean, you've talked about how reactions to a lot of these drugs are biological and that animals generally respond in similar ways. But there are certain personality elements or other biological aspects that make different kinds of people respond differently, right? Exactly. And that's what I've spent a lot of time doing is trying to understand we we can document that people differ in their responses to drugs, even though they might weigh the same and they might have similar kind of characteristics, they might, they respond quite differently. And we've spent many years trying to discover why they respond differently. And there are many factors. So personality might be one factor. There might be sex differences. It might depend on your, for women, what uh, phase of the cycle they're in. Oh, wow. Uh, It might depend on genetic factors. And so a a whole range of factors can influence how people respond to drugs. And any one of those then could influence their liability to go on or their risk to go on and use the drug repeatedly. So Harriet, I don't know if you necessarily feel like the best person to answer this question, but since I have you, I feel like I have to ask, why do you think humans and, as you mentioned, other animals pursue these mind-altering substances? I think there are many levels to answer the question. One level is at the neurobiological level, that a lot of these drugs that humans use for recreational purposes act on neurotransmitter systems or circuits that are involved in rewarding effects and positive motivations for other rewards. Mm -hmm. So they could be activating a reward circuit that usually mediates food or sex or thirst or something like that. So that's one level to answer the question. 
It enhances enjoyment of things. Kind yes. Of. Yeah. Yes. You can imagine that an animal, to, in order to pursue food or to pursue sex, has to have some level of enjoyment of it as well, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah. We need incentives. But there are other reasons why people use, uh, lots of reasons why people use drugs. One is curiosity. So yeah. a lot of the hallucinogens, for example, they don't necessarily produce pleasant effects, but they produce different effects. They change your environment yeah. in, a, in, a, in a way that can give you new insights or new ways to see the world. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people use drugs to, uh, uh, for social reasons to, look, to conform, basically. Sure. There are, uh, some people argue that drugs are used to relieve negative states, so that, that, that people used drugs to self-medicate. Now, that's something that's often used retrospectively like i used the drug because it made me feel better or something but it, yeah. so there's some that's that's a testable idea that mm -hmm. the drugs really relieve states well and so, that's where things can get a little risky too right yeah because often then if you're just using drugs to escape whatever misery you're in in your life as opposed to dealing with that misery like that's often right right, right so there's not a simple answer why people take drugs or what the commonalities are between the animals and the humans. But those are the kinds of questions that we ask ourselves. I'm fascinated by your work for a number of reasons, but I think partly it's because, you know, I mean, we consider in a lot of ways these things to just be illicit, right? Like they're illegal. You're not supposed to do them. They're bad for you. But because of that, that means that a lot of people, we we don't have a lot of data about how people could actually respond and what potential therapeutic things could look like. And I just think it's so incredible and fascinating that you're able to to try it and to see what happens, you know, to actually collect some data. I feel really fortunate to be able to be in a position where we can do these studies. When you say the drugs are illicit, uh, they're yeah. illicit for sort of historical reasons. Right. You know, something might have gone wrong in the past or there might have been some social or cultural influence that made the drug illegal, basically. Mm -hmm. And that's based on a scheduling system that the drug enforcement, the DEA has. And some of the drugs have just ended up there kind of by accident. So I would say cannabis is one of those that that's, it, it's ended up in the most severely restricted uh, schedule. And, and so it's not available to most people to do research even. And then you have these weird situations, differences between federal laws and state laws where the state says it's okay and the federal law says it's not okay. So we've, that's sort of, an, uh, in a way, an accident of history. In the case of MDMA, there were some problems that got used partly out of control, but then partly also just political and, and cultural that people were concerned about it. Same with LSD, that it started out being used in certain contexts, either therapeutic or recreational, and then it, everybody turned against it and made it illicit. So it's sort of it's more of a cultural or a social or a political kind of thing that makes something really an illegal drug. Do you ever wonder if the novelty would wear off if they were illegal? Like, is part of the fun that they're... Well, apparently, so we're very concerned about making cannabis legal here, and there's a lot of concern about if, Illinois, it's more, yeah. if it's more available, will more people use it? But you can look at examples of countries like the Netherlands. Yeah. Where the, it's been legal for a long time, it's easy to get, it's available in coffee shops, and the only people that really get into trouble with it are the tourists. So, <laughs> or the so Americans there, there. That's, that's kind of an example of the the novelty of it. This this just not, this just doesn't. They're not drawn to it. It's yeah. available, but yeah. they're not drawn to it so much. So yes, I think the novelty is part of it. I grew up in Alaska. Where okay, it was legal. Recreational 
pot is now legal. And when I was a teenager, it was not, but I smoked it anyway. And uh, and I remember the first time I went up to visit the summer after it became legal and we smoked a joint in the parking lot of the hot springs. And I was like, I don't know if this feels as awesome as it did two years ago <laughs> when much I fun. was being a real badass with this. Yeah, and right. now it's totally fine. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Harriet, a big part of this conversation around the idea of using drugs therapeutically has to do with microdosing, which is another thing that your lab has been working on, right? I've just started a study just as our first step. We're just looking at what the effects of a single dose of these very low doses are. So we had healthy volunteers and we gave them either placebo or six micrograms or 13 micrograms or uh, 26 micrograms of LSD Uh in an eight-hour session. Now, the dose that you need that people use to have a trip is about 100 micrograms so, okay, so or 100 is... to 200. So this is very low. So we're just – the idea is just to give doses that just barely produce any effects when you experience them. But then the idea is that if you take it every three days that people claim that it makes them feel better. So they claim that it has antidepressant effects. They claim that it improves cognition and that it generally makes people feel better. Partly because it's a Schedule One drug, this hasn't been tested, and not very many people have access to either the population or the drug or the regulatory machinery to do it. Right. And so we've just started a series of studies doing that. And so our first study on that will be published shortly, basically, and then we're starting. We're now going to start another study where we are giving the drug repeatedly to people who have some depressed mood. Huh. Man, it makes me think, hearing you describe that reminded me of, I'm trying to remember the name of the drug in Brave New World. I don't remember what But you is. know what I'm talking yeah. about, right? It's yeah. like, it's the thing that everybody takes every day to just feel <laughs> a little better. <laughs> right. And I don't know. I mean, it's so fascinating the to drugs me. Drugs like that have been around. First of all, it was Valium, right? Back in the That's 60s. That's true. And well, then, and even earlier than that, like was, laudanum. Right. And, okay. And then it was amphetamine. People right. were taking their little pills. And well, then and people have been Prozac, drinking for like so, literal <laughs> centuries. So there, often there's been something around that helps people get through the day. So you think it's okay? Well, it remains to be seen whether, first of all, we need to see whether it has any effect if it's tested. And people have very strong beliefs about it. And those very strong beliefs, of course, can influence their responses. So if you believe strongly enough in something, then it might have an effect. So question number one is, does it do anything? Cultural stigma, too, you know, that it's just like, oh, wow, we get to do that now. Like, that's crazy. Right. It's interesting to hear your perspective on it. I'm kind of, (laughs) I'm thinking about it from the point of view of how the drug acts on the brain, what receptors it works on, and does it work on the same receptors where, say, antidepressants work? So I'm I'm coming at it from a, I mean, it's great to be able to test it in a lab situation. So I'm thrilled from that point. It's fascinating. It's an exciting time to be in the field where there's this kind of loosening up of ages old restrictions, but we all feel that we have to move very carefully and then and kind of go one step at a time and see. And so w- one drug where it hasn't gone one step at a time is is cannabis, where we're just kind of making it legal and seeing what happens. Right. So it's a little bit worrying. We'll have to see what happens. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a social experiment. <laughs> it's absolutely a social <laughs> experiment. <laughs> Given your research and the insights you're making, especially into these therapeutic applications, how do you see that playing out 10 years down the line? Like, is this a thing where you can go to the MDMA dispensary? Or do you see it more ideal, like in a clinical setting where you have a therapist who can write you a script and then you can spend the day with them going through things? Like, how are 
How are you envisioning what that could look like? In the case of both MDMA and the psychedelic drugs, LSD or psilocybin, they're very potent drugs. And so I think whatever happens in a therapeutic situation, we have to keep a lot of control over who has access to them and and how the drug is administered. We have to study it more carefully to see what's the best way to give it. But uh, uh, there might be people who think it should be, all those drugs should be more freely available. I'm not one of them. I think that, uh, you know, we've kind of learned from mistakes that people, the irresponsible people can use them in irresponsible ways. And so I would be in favor of introducing them very cautiously into therapeutic practice. So can I ask, do you have an interest in them recreationally, like for yourself, or are you completely only interested in observing other people doing them in the lab? I don't know how to answer that. I'm I'm uh, <laughs> I'm interested, and I, I haven't tried these drugs, and I hesitate to say that because then people say, "Well, then you're not qualified to comment on them." Oh, interesting. Well, <laughs> on the other hand, once yeah. you've used it, then you might also bias your your responses, your expectations, and what you're going to find. For so, sure. I think in my case, I think it's sort of irrelevant. But it's also one of the reasons I was so interested in the Michael Poland book, because he's someone who went ahead and tried it. He, he did got, it. He did the research and he prepared himself and he tried it. And then he talks about how, what it was like. So so I would be interested in trying them sometime. And I haven't. I kind of love the idea of you just going wild after retirement. Yeah, right. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Harriet DeWitt, thank you so much. This is so interesting. It's really my pleasure. I love to talk about it, and I love to think about it, and uh, you had good questions, so thank you. Oh, good. Everybody wins. Yeah, right. So this conversation with Harriet got me wondering how many of my esteemed colleagues here at WBEZ would be potentially interested in participating in a study like this. So I walked around our newsroom and asked this question. How much would you want to get paid to take hallucinogenic drugs in a laboratory setting? I think it would depend on how nice the pillows are. A lot, a lot, a lot of money. Is there, Are you going to use my name for this? <laughs> I feel like I'm, I'm afraid to answer. <laughs> You're going to, like, judge me no matter. I'm going to go with, like, half a million. A hundred dollars. A hundred, not bad. Like, a lot. Like, what's like a, like a million. Like a million. How much would you have to get paid to take hallucinogenic drugs in a laboratory setting? Uh, $7. Wait, for money? <laughs> yeah, how much would you have to get paid to do it? You would do it for free is what you're saying. What's this for? Well, I've never taken hallucinogenic drugs, even in a fun setting. So if it was like a controlled environment, I'd say like $500. Okay. What's the minimum wage right now? 15 an hour? That would be fine. I would do it for $10 an hour. That's good stuff. Yeah, I was going to say I would do it for five. <laughs> but I don't want to, you know, love all yeah, of right, right, right. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we followed up with Harriet and we asked her how much people actually do get paid to take drugs for science. And she says at the University of Chicago, it's about $10 an hour for about 20 hours of work spread out over a couple weeks. Don't worry, this isn't a really intense one-time trip or anything. So that ends up being about $200, which, I don't know, doesn't seem that bad. Though, just to be clear, we do not condone the use of drugs outside a laboratory setting. 
The show is produced by me, Greta Johnson, along with Justin Bull. Our co-creator is Trisha Bobita. Our intern is Bia Medius, and our executive producer is Brendan Banizak. Nerdette is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. Hey, we have a newsletter. It's pretty awesome. I like to put links to delicious things to make and fun books to read and other great things on the interwebs. You can sign up for it on our Facebook page. Just search for Nerdette and then click the blue sign up button. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Hope you liked the club mix. Sorry, Pod. About 200 bucks to do some drugs, depending on the quality of the pillows. We're not sure. That didn't quite work. I don't know what happened. I'm high. Just kidding. I would never at work. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tan Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.